0: Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Right about now, many of you are beginning to uh, start to prepare your taxes. You're thinking about what's going to be having to be turned in on April 15th. But while we're busy preparing our taxes, there's actually a guy out there in Oregon who has no plans to prepare his taxes at all. In fact, he hasn't turned in a tax return since 1999. And he says the reason he doesn't file his taxes is because of his Christian convictions. And you may wonder, what would they be? he says that he does not want his money to be used for taxpayer-funded abortions. Because he believes in the sanctity of life, he doesn't want his tax money to fund the taking of human life. So as a 53-year-old man, he has continued to uh, cash his checks and keep his bank account balance low, so therefore the government cannot garnish his wages. Most recent estimate, the government says he owes about $356,000 in back taxes plus penalties. So the government has actually taken him to court. And in court, he had a very famous line. And he said this, If a woman has a right to choose to take a life, I should have a right to choose whether I want to fund it or not. Well, what do you think? As Christians... Do we have a right to withhold funds from our government because of some of the evils in our government, like taxpayer-funded abortions? If you think about it, there's a whole lot more evils in our government than just taxpayer-funded abortions. There's also wars that sometimes are unjust and immoral. There's also lavish expenses. And, of course, there's never-ending litigation. So there's always something to watch on the evening news. As Christians, do we have the right to withhold our tax money to keep these evil and poor choices from being funded? Do we even have the moral obligation to not pay taxes because of those things? That is the question that we will wrestle with this morning and we'll come to an answer. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verse 13, which is where we're going to be at our, for our key text this morning. Now, last week, as we were in the beginning of Mark chapter 12, we know that Jesus told a, a parable, and he also told a prophecy. That parable was the parable of the tenant farmers. And the tenant farmers, it's a, it's a story, both a false story, but with a true spiritual meaning, The story was about a man who owned a vineyard who had leased it out to some tenant farmers and every time the owner of the vineyard sent his servants, the tenant farmers were evil and they they would beat, kill, and destroy those servants of the owner who came to get what was rightfully his. Finally, the owner sent his own son to the tenant farmers. They killed the son. And that unleashed the owner's final fury. And his patience was over. Now as we read that, it ended with this line. It was in verse 12 of chapter 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. Notice that. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they left and went away. In other words, all the religious leaders there and the people there got it. They put the pieces together just like we did last week. They realized that Jesus said, you are the evil tenant farmers who have killed God's servants and now are going to kill God's son. And as a result, God will lose his patience with you. Now you'd think that would be a good time to repent, but they didn't repent. In fact, what they did is they went away they figured out a new plan to catch Jesus and now they've returned. So here we are one verse later and they are back and they are going to try and trap Jesus once again. But do you remember they have two problems and we just saw one of them in the ending part of that verse, in verse 12. They're afraid of the people. Jesus is extremely popular with the people. They can't just grab him for fear of an uprising against them. The other thing they have that's a problem is that they can't kill Jesus because as the Jewish leaders, they don't have that authority. The only person who has that authority are the Romans themselves. So they have to overcome these two obstacles. How can we turn the people against Jesus and how can we turn the Romans against Jesus? If we can turn the people against Jesus and the Romans against Jesus, it's done. The Romans will do our dirty work for us and get rid of Jesus. So what they've done is when they uh, went away between these two verses, they met together as a Sanhedrin and came up with a plan. And here was the plan. They're going to send three delegations to Jesus. The Sanhedrin, as we learned in previous weeks, actually consists of three major groups. The groups are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. The Pharisees are the most religiously conservative in the group. They're the far right, if you want to call it, in modern day parlance. The Sadducees, they're the liberals in the group. They don't necessarily believe in the Scripture. In scripture they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So they're, they're the far left in the group. And the scribes, incidentally, uh, they are lawyers, biblical lawyers. And so they are almost like the judges in the group. So there's going to be these three groups that are going to come to Jesus. First, the Pharisees will come to him. We'll study them this week. And then there are going to be the Sadducees that will come to him next week. And then the scribes that will come to him the following week. And all of these groups are going to try to trick Jesus, to try and trap Jesus, to turn the people against Jesus, and hopefully also the Romans against Jesus so they can finally do away with Jesus that is the game plan so let's read this morning uh, Mark chapter 12 verses 13 through 17 as we see this first delegation this group of Pharisees that come to trick Jesus please stand out of reverence for God's word as we read those verses beginning in verse 13 And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I mean, should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. That ends the reading of the Word of God. You can be seated. What we'll do is uh, sort of our typical pattern. We'll study through these verses, explaining them, and then when we get to the end, we'll apply them and you'll sh- we'll see how these verses actually relate quite well to our everyday life. Beginning in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. The they obviously refers to the Sanhedrins, the the Jewish ruling council. This is the first delegation that they are sending to Jesus. And it says they are sending to him uh, Pharisees with some Herodians. Now for the average person who reads this, that doesn't mean much. But to someone in that day, it would strike them instantly. Because Pharisees and Herodians are on opposite side of the political spectrum. As I've already mentioned to you, the Pharisees are very conservative. These are guys that literally have memorized large portions, if not all, of the Old Testament. The Pharisees are very anti-Rome. They're very pro-Israel. But Herodians are the exact opposite. They are followers of Herod. They're the ones who are in favor of the Romans being there. They are supportive of the establishment. While the Pharisees are theologically orientated, the Herodians are politically orientated. Uh, The Herodians are very expedient, do whatever you have to just to stay in the good favor of the Romans. That's what's going on here. Now, normally these two groups would be at one another's throats, but they're willing to join together for the sole purpose of getting rid of Jesus. This is the way they're working it. Uh, The Pharisees are leading the charge. They're going to try and work on a way to put Jesus into a bind. They want Jesus to say some anti-Roman political statement. When Jesus does that, the Herodians who are with them, who are very pro-Roman, will instantly run and go to the Romans and say, you know this guy Jesus who everybody is talking about from Passover? who thousands upon thousands cheered him on the triumphal entry and everybody's listening to him, well, he is saying some very anti-Roman things. And instantly, the Roman soldiers would come, arrest Jesus, and do away with him. That's the game plan. And notice in this verse, it says that they are trying to set a trap for Jesus. This word is the the only time it's been used in the uh, Greek New Testament. It's a hunting term. It's a a trap that you would use to snare an animal. My boys, when they were younger, were very much into those raccoon traps. you guys ever have those things where you spread them out like bear traps? You step on them and it snaps closed. That's what these guys are doing. They are setting a trap for Jesus and trying to get him to step into it and say some anti-Roman statements so therefore the Romans would go after him. Now, let's just see how this goes on. And they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the word, the way of God. Well, if you have a trap, you have to put bait in the trap. What bait are they putting in the trap? Anybody see it? Flattery. Oh, Jesus, you certainly will always speak the truth. It doesn't matter who's around you. It doesn't matter, in other words, if the Herodians are right next to you. If I ask you something, you know you're such an honest guy. You'll always tell us what's right. See how they're setting this up? Incidentally, they're right. Jesus does always speak the truth, no matter who's around Who's the one that doesn't speak the truth all the time? It's the Pharisees. They're the ones who have to be manipulated into saying the truth. Jesus will always speak the truth. And then here comes their question. Well, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I mean, should we pay them or should we not? Now, for us, we sit there and think, well, of course you want to pay your taxes. Doesn't everybody pay their taxes? But put yourself back into this first century society where the Romans were invaders. The Romans had taken over Israel. They were in control of Israel. They were Gentiles. They were pagans. They did not mix with the Jews at all. Now as far as the Jews were concerned they didn't want to pay taxes to the Romans they weren't interested in paying taxes to the Romans the only reason they would pay their taxes is cuz they had to remember the idea of a Jewish tax collector if you've been around the bible for a while what rank in society does a tax collector hold the absolute bottom They are hated by the Jews, seeing as sellouts to the Romans. Now the reason the Jewish tax collectors could collect their tax is because they had what was known as sort of a local mafia with them. It's like, you pay your taxes or tell me just which finger you would like broken. That's the way it works. So people are paying their taxes not because they want to, but because they have to to survive. Interestingly, in the Greek, when it talks about the tax here, the Greek word is specific about a particular kind of tax they're talking about. It's what's known as the poll tax or the head tax. It was a tax instituted by the Romans on every man, woman, and child to be alive. If you were alive, you had to pay this tax. This tax uh, was paid once a year. And most people did not like it at all. It was paid as one denarius per person. A denarius was roughly the equivalent of a day laborer's day wage. So you, to pay this tax, you had to work one day a year for the government. Which, by the way, it may not sound too bad until you realize that was only one tax. And there were tons of taxes. And if you had a large family and you were already poor, guess what? What? Your tax burden went up instead of down. So you can see why this was such a hated tax. give you a little more background on this. Uh, when this tax was instituted, there was actually a rebellion in Israel against it. Uh, you can, the most noteworthy rebellion happened in the year 6 AD, shortly after Jesus was born. There was a man named Judas the Galilean who led this rebellion. This is not the Judas, by the way, who uh, was part of betraying and killing Jesus. This guy, that guy comes later in history. This is a guy named Judas the Galilean who comes earlier in history. The way this worked is he said this tax is not right. It's oppressive. He led a whole bunch of people in rebellion against it. Guess how the Romans dealt with it? You stop Judas, the problem goes away. And that's exactly what happened. But what we find is, um, with Judas' death, there became a settled position among the Jewish people that Jewish taxes, Roman taxes, in particular the poll tax, was deeply wrong. Now, we can find this tax and actually um, Judas' death actually being referred to in Scripture, In Acts chapter 5, talks about it. Gamaliel is quoted here. It says, After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, the Romans got rid of him, and all who followed him were scattered. Interestingly, this settled conviction on the wrongness of taxes and the, the Jewish tax, the poll tax, it was a settled conviction in the time of Jesus that it was wrong, but it actually resurfaced 60 years after Judas was killed in 66 AD. That is when the Jews, in mass, decided to stop paying their taxes to Rome from Jerusalem. Now we know uh, from previous studies that you have between 1 and 2 million people in Jerusalem Jerusalem at this point. It was a massive rebellion. Jerusalem essentially declared itself a sanctuary city from the Romans. Did not go well from that point forward. Shortly after 66 AD, the Romans sent an army led by Titus and surrounded the city and they tried to negotiate this out. And when guys, let's come on, let's pay your taxes if you don't want anything bad to happen here. The Jews became very obstinate and continued to refuse to pay their taxes which is what ultimately led to the Romans destroying Jerusalem in 70 A.D., four years later. So the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, just so you know, historically, it was not completely unprovoked. It was provoked by the Jews in response to refusal to pay their taxes. So the Pharisees, at this point, are positive that there is no other answer to this question, should we pay our taxes? There is no other answer besides no, especially this terrible poll tax that Judas had recently led a rebellion against. And as soon as Jesus says no, the Herodians who are right there, who are pro-Herod, will run to the fortress called Antonia, which is less than 100 yards away where the Roman soldiers are kept. The Roman soldiers will come, arrest Jesus, and dispatch with him. If Jesus says, yes, we should pay our taxes, the people will turn against him. Because the people hate the Romans, and they hate these oppressive taxes, especially the poll tax. So how does Jesus handle this? He says, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. This word hypocrisy literally means play-acting. It was used to describe what people in theaters did. In other words, they don't really want an answer to this question. They're just making all this up to try and trap Jesus. He says, bring me this denarius that we're supposed to use to pay our taxes. It was actually used, by the way, from 300 B.C. to 300 A.D. It could only be minted by the the leader of Rome. It was made in silver. And this is what he said. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Let me show you what one of these denarius look like. Okay. This is actually, I looked this one up on the internet. This is a Roman denarius that is actually from the time of Jesus Assuming that, this was a, that what was used was a current denarius, it would have been identical to this coin that is used here. Now, what you can see on the front right here, oopsie, try this. Well, my telestrator is not working. We'll try it this way. What you can see on the front is Tiberius Caesar's uh, face, and then what it would say is on the outside, this is harder because it's pushed out, is Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Uh, Augustus was his father, and what it says was the divine Augustus. So Augustus by, was considered a god by the Romans. Therefore, his son, Tiberius, was also considered a god. Now, if you flipped it over on the backside, who is that? That is a woman named Livia. Livia, Livia is Tiberius' mother. So the cool part is, you know this guy likes his mom because he puts his mom on the money. But she is considered a goddess because her husband was considered a god. Now on the side, you can see it a little clearer here. It says Pontifus Maximus. You know what that means? Chief priest or high priest in other words tiberius is god and high priest on our money we have a picture of washington or a picture of lincoln and then we say in god we trust on their money it says here's tiberius he is the god in whom you trust Now you see why the Jews were a little bit skittish about paying taxes and even using this money. Incidentally, the Jews wouldn't even carry a denarius on them because they saw it as a violation of the first and second of the Ten Commandments. Having another god before them, because Tiberius and his mother claimed to be gods, and having a graven image of that god, because that was obviously stamped into the metal that was with them. So, you have this idea that, hey, we shouldn't pay taxes. We shouldn't even carry this money around because these guys call themselves gods and goddesses and they even have graven images of the gods and goddesses. So you can see the frustration in the Jews with this. So how does Jesus answer this question about paying taxes? Jesus said to them, Well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. What does Jesus say? Here's essentially what he says. Human government, even though it is imperfect human government, even though it is flawed human government, is better than no government at all. A poorly run state is better than no state. You ever looked anything up about Somalia and what life is like there? Where there's no government and no laws and there's complete anarchy. Jesus is saying, we may not necessarily agree with the Romans, but you know, the Roman government is better than no government at all. And what have the Romans done for the Jews? Number one, they've provided the Pax Romana, which is for the first time in a long time there is worldwide peace. So there's all kinds of prosperity. The Romans have provided roads for travel because for the first time there's actually decent ways you can travel between places that wasn't available before. The Romans have created aqueducts. They brought water into Jerusalem for the people. There's a lot of good things the Romans have done even if you don't believe in all the things the Romans do. The government's job, by the way, is to keep evil in check and to serve the people. Does the government do that perfectly? Absolutely not. But even if they don't do that perfectly, it's better than no government at all. In this statement by Jesus give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's, becomes sort of the foundation for the separation between the church and the state, and it also becomes the foundation for what many other parts of the New Testament teach about the relationship between Christians and our government. A government that we do not always agree with, because they don't do everything in a biblical and godly way. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to shift. I'd like to shift now and look at some application. What is the relationship between us as Christians and the state supposed to look like according to the rest of the New Testament? Let me just give you a few points here. Point A, God raises up governments, even unjust ones. We're going to see this if we go to the book of Romans We're going to look at Romans chapter 13, which, by the way, is written to people who are living under Roman government, the same government that is printing the denarius money that everybody's freaking out on. And the first thing that Romans 13 tells us is God is the one who has given us our government. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God And those that exist have been instituted by God. In other words, Rome is in charge of you, and it is God who has actually put them in charge of you. Now, by the way, in America, we like to pride ourselves thinking that we are the ones who elect our presidents. We are the ones who elect our legislatures. And in one sense, that is very true. But in an ultimate sense, that is not true. Who is the one who puts a president, even a president we may not agree with, in power? God is the one who does that. And because God is the one who puts that person in power, we have to respect that person who God has put them in authority over us. Romans chapter 13 is not just the, the only place in the scriptures that talk about God being the one who puts those in authority over us. We see this in Daniel and many other places. Daniel chapter 2. He changes time and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Or Daniel chapter 4. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And sets over it the lowliest of men. So God is the one who establishes government over us. And this naturally follows since God is the one who puts our government over us. There are consequences for rebelling against our government. Romans chapter 13 verse 2 tells us this. Those who resist the government resist an authority God has established. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So, those who are resisting the God ordained authority over them of the government, even if it is an imperfect authority and oftentimes a messed up, is ultimately resisting an authority that God put there. And you're rebelling against God, not just the government. Now, let's think about this as we go to the Old Testament and look at a little wider perspective. Remember when uh, Judah rebelled against God? And then God, we read in the Old Testament, raised up the wicked and cruel Babylonians to conquer his own people and to take them into exile? God is the one who raised up the Babylonians. But then, because of the wickedness and cruelty of the Babylonians, then God raised up the Medo Persian Empire to conquer them. Interestingly, when God's people were in exile, we read in the Old Testament that they did not want to interface with these wicked and cruel and godless Babylonians. But what did God say to them? No, get involved in the city, do good for the city. Be a light in the city is what God said to his people when they were in Babylon so that people would be introduced to him. You see, God is the one who raises up governments. And to rebel against the governments is to rebel against him. Now, let me just put this into a modern-day motif. Our government doesn't do everything right. But when people in our society rebel against the police and call them pigs, people in our society, throw water on the police officers, disrespect the police officers, lie, face straight up to police officers, they're not just rebelling against the government. They are rebelling against an authority that God has established for their good over them. The same thing goes on with sanctuary cities when cities say we are not going to work with the national government, we are going to keep those who should be arrested and deported here safe with us, they're rebelling against an authority that God has established over them. Now, am I saying that our national government is perfect? Absolutely not. But I am saying what the Scripture says, that the authorities over us have been established by God, and to rebel against authority is to rebel against God. The next point that Romans makes is this: If we are doing good, we should not need to fear the government, for rulers are not a terror to do good, to, not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Well, then do good, and you will receive his approval. Now, I recognize there are times where there are people in governmental authorities who do flat-out evil. Let's recognize that right up front. Uh, Hitler, he deported and brought into concentration camps many good, solid citizens who were Jews for no good reason. But in 99.9% of the the cases out there, if you are doing the right thing, you do not have to worry about the government going after you. I often chuckle when I see in our uh, modern-day political situation where some people are saying, no, it's, it's not right to investigate those people for corruption. Don't do that. That's not right. It's not fair. I'm like, well, if you don't have any corruption, then why are you worried about being investigated? You know, that's what Paul says. If you're doing the right thing, the government's not going to be able to stick you with anything. That's the simple way it works. So let me just make this clear as I go a little further here. Am I saying our government is always right? Absolutely not. Am I saying the police are always right and our military are always right? Of course not. But the nice part is we live in a day and time that if our rights are violated, at least we have an option. We can go to court and we can litigate. When Paul was writing this in the book of Romans, there were no courts. There were no options of litigations. When the government did the wrong thing, you just had to live with it. So my point is here, there is a difference between disagreeing with a choice of the government and disrespecting the government. We can disagree with the government, and we can go to court on those issues, but we cannot, as Christians, disrespect the authorities that are put over us. In fact, look what Paul says as we go to the fourth verse of Romans 13. God gives us earthly government as a gift of his common grace for our good. For he is God's servant for your good. That's the purpose of government. To serve us for our good. Do they do that perfectly? Absolutely not. But think about all the good things that we have because of God's grace to us through our government. We have police, so you can sleep safe at night in your homes. We have military, so to keep our country from being invaded from extremely wicked other nations. We have paved streets that we can drive here on because of our government and the taxes we paid. We have laws that say that you actually drive on the right-hand side of the road. Because if our government had made the laws on which side you have to drive on and where you have to stop, guess what it would be like trying to go through traffic? It would be complete anarchy. Because of our government and our taxes, we have our snow plowed. Imagine if the roads weren't plowed. Because of our government and taxes, we have things like free public high school education where our kids can go and our kids can be involved in sports programs and all those things because of our government. Because of our government, we have purified water that comes out of our faucets. Because of our government, we have sewage treatment plants to take care of our waste. Because of our government, there's our trash is picked up and taken care of. Because of our government, we have fire trucks in our community that come that when a house is on fire to put out our blaze. Because of our government, there are ambulances that when you have a heart attack or when you're injured, they come to your rescue. They come to your help. Because of our government, we have public parks, places that are fenced off where we can actually go where it's open and wide. And maybe best of all right now, because of our government, we have people that are trying to keep the coronavirus out of our nation. You see, we may not agree with everything our government does. But there's a lot of good things our government does do. Our government has been put there as a gift from God to keep the evil from spreading in our world. Well, that means, uh, what should we do when it comes time to pay our taxes? That's what it says. Just go to Romans. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Michael Bowman, (laughs) the guy we talked about at the introduction, refuses to pay his taxes because a very small portion of his taxes go to fund Planned Parenthood. But that same Michael Bowman has water that comes out of his tap because of the taxes that other people pay. That same Michael Bowman enjoys protection and safety from police officers and the military. That same Michael Bowman enjoys free public education for his children. And the list goes on and on and on. As Christians, we don't have to agree with everything in our government to still be people who support our government give to caesar what is caesar's and yet give to god what is god now there are a couple other things the bible says about how we as christians are to relate to our government we're to pray for our government first of all i first of all then i urge that supplications prayers intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people For kings and all who are in high places, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Here is Paul saying, you know, make sure you pray for Tiberius Caesar, the guy who thinks he's a God, the guy who has often made poor decisions, but why don't we pray? Let's pray that he makes good decisions. Let's pray that he makes decisions that are helpful to the people, that are beneficial to the people. That's what we should be doing. Even if we don't agree with him on everything, we can certainly pray for him. He also says this, we're to be known for doing good in society, not being the rebels of society. Peter says this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter says, as Christians, we should not be known as the rebels in our society, the people who are refusing to pay our taxes... We should be known for the best citizens of our society who are always working for the good of others. That is what we are to be known for. Now, let's flip to the other side because it's only fair that we cover the other side. Should we ever resist the government or when should we resist the government? There's two things I'd like to show you. Number one, when the government asks us to violate a command of God, in those cases, we can resist the government. There's a time in the scriptures where um, we find that the apostles were commanded by Jesus to go spread the word of Jesus. But the, they were brought in and commanded by the, the, those politically involved to say not to speak about Jesus anymore. And what do we find happen in Acts chapter 5 verse 29? But Peter and the apostles answered, "We must obey God rather than men." So if there's a clear-cut contradiction between God's word and the government's word, God's word wins out every time over that. Amen. Now, let's look at it this way. Imagine someday that our government says that we cannot gather to worship, that we cannot gather to pray. They take our Bibles, and they burn our Bibles, and they threaten us with our very lives if we would gather in Jesus' name and pray in Jesus' name. Sort of like what it's like in China. Sort of what it's like in Muslim countries. What do we do in those times? Do we submit to the government? Or do we resist the government? Our reply is, we must obey God rather than we must obey men. Uh, Let me bring this maybe to a little bit closer to home. Let's say there's a time in the future where the government says that churches must ordain homosexual or transgender clergy to maintain their tax-exempt status. What do we say? We could say the buzzer. Or we could quote the scriptures. I'm sorry, we must obey God rather than obey man. If we have to lose our tax-exempt status, we will. Or even as a pastor. Sometimes you find that as a pastor, you're, people will say, you know, maybe you have to consider doing uh, weddings for homosexuals or weddings for transgender you know, because you should do that and maybe all of a sudden I will find myself in litigation with the government because I wouldn't do those things. What's the answer? I'm sorry. I have to obey God rather than obey man. And by the way, if you look in the New Testament, doesn't it seem like the most common thing that is happening with Christians they're being persecuted for their faith? And they're ultimately being martyred for their faith? So if we experience persecution and we experience martyrdom, it's not abnormal, folks. It's actually normal. One other point I'd like to make here with this regard to this. There's a time to resist our government when the government asks us to violate our Christian conscience. Uh, refer that to Romans chapter 14, verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Remember when the Obamacare uh, medical program first rolled out? One of the things with Obamacare is they mandated that corporations were to provide reproductive health care for their employees, which at one level doesn't sound like that big of a deal. But as part of what reproductive health care is, The Obamacare plan stipulates that you need to provide the morning after pill, the abortion pill, to your employees if they request it, and you have to pay for it. Hobby Lobby is a company that is not publicly owned. Hobby Lobby is a company that is privately owned by a Christian family. And they disagreed with the government, their conscience. We cannot take our money which is privately held and use it to fund the abortion pill for our employee if they request it because we would be complicit we feel in the taking of a human life and they handled it in a very wise way rather than making a huge stink over it and being disrespectful to the government they actually began to go to court they followed the whole legal process and i'm here to tell you by the way if you don't know they won they won that they do not have to provide the abortion pill to their employees. So, you know, there is a positive way that we can take care of these things in our government today. Now, in the interest of time, I'm just going to land this one. I'm not going to go on to that final point, but I just want to go back to this. You know, as Christians, we have to wrestle with this. How do we interface with a government that oftentimes has many non-Christian values in it? And what is the answer? Well, we support our government, even if we don't agree with everything in our government, because we reap many of the benefits of that government, not just the detriments. Now, are there times that uh, we have to disagree? Are there times where we have to say we have to serve God rather than man? Yes, but those are far and few in between. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you, We thank you for what your word has taught us this morning about giving to Caesar what is Caesar's and giving to God what is God's. That there is a separation between church and state and yet as Christians we must be men and women who seek to honor you by doing good in society, by praying for our leaders and by submitting to those who are in authority over us even when we don't agree with them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.